Hello, good evening, and welcome to the TNT Show. I'm John Drummond, and I'll be your host for the next 60 exciting minutes. Guaranteed you're going to learn stuff tonight that you would never, ever have thought you didn't know. Isn't that the most amazing thing? 60 minutes, great entertainment, and, and, but it's free. Free to you, from us to you. You know, it's been another great day for British democracy. This week, while Holyrood was passing legislation uh, to protect children better, Westminster, by contrast, uh, decided to spend more money on weapons of mass destruction. So for them, it's bombs before bombs. I think that's possibly the wrong way around. Who knows? We'll be talking about that in great detail later on. Thanks for joining us this evening. And a particularly warm welcome to all of you who are joining us from overseas. It's always great to know that our reach extends well beyond this island. Uh, and that's deeply gratifying. We appreciate you joining us uh, this evening and every other TNT show. We have yet another great guest tonight. Uh, I'm really excited that she's able to join us. Tonight, the TNT show, The Nation Talks, and welcomes Suzanne Zedek. And we'll be talking about relationships and children and so much more besides. So The Nation Talks, to a large extent, this is your show, and we look forward to your questions. Now, to our guest tonight. The Nation Talks tonight to Suzanne Zedek. How are you, Suzanne? How are you coping with the pandemic? I am so delighted to be here, John, and to talk about all these topics. And um, I am ready for the pandemic to be over. But of course, one of the interesting points is I don't think it raises an interesting question. What is over and what are we going on to? And I think that's one of the things that we should be thinking about on behalf of our children and, and who do we want to be after the virus? Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, and no doubt we'll come on to that later. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, John, that's always such an interesting way that you do this show in order to get to know uh, the people as well as their work and their ideas. I spent quite a lot of my childhood in the southern states of America, and that will be obvious from my accent. Uh, although I have now been in, in Scotland for... Uh, more than half my life, and arrived at the University of Dundee in 1993. But thinking back on my childhood, some of the key things that helped me to get to the things I talk about today, I was thinking there's really two things. One is I spent quite a number of years in my childhood on a farm where I had tons of outdoor play. And we, uh, we had a big barn and we slept in the loft of that barn all the summer nights. And I learned um, to read books by torch. And in fact, I even I had a favorite tree and I would climb that tree with my favorite book where I could hide and no one could find me. And so I found myself thinking, in anticipation of tonight, thinking about how precious reading felt to me and that books were really my friends. And, and I think that having a chance to really love reading in that way shapes you know, who you become. I, I do think that's terribly important. Uh, and I was interested in growing up on a farm too, because you're sort of, 
you get the best of all possible worlds in one sense if you're a reader because you get that sort of environment where you're not under, as you had in an urban area, lots of pressure and lots of stuff going on all the time. But you can bring that into your life through reading. You could become very busy inside your head because you read something which you love and which, I mean, growing up, I used to love Mark Twain. So uh-huh. I love the Mississippi and I'm thinking, this is crazy, right? <laughs> it, it took me 30 years to reach the Mississippi. <laughs> but t- I liked it. It takes you to another place. It lets you be an armchair traveler, to use that phrase. Yeah. So one of the reasons that that's really relevant to tonight is that sometimes we think about reading as the skill of reading or literacy. Um, I, I like sometimes to make very bold statements. Literacy on its own is not much fun. And literacy on its own doesn't motivate children to want to learn to read. If literacy gives you access to new worlds and to um, new ideas, then it motivates children to want to read. And so I think as we, you know, when we think about academics, we need to think in terms of those stories and that wonder and, and creating new worlds and ideas for children. In other words, fun. Yeah. And one of the things that sometimes I think we're a bit nervous about in Scotland is fun. Our Presbyterian nature is not sure about that fun thing. And yet one of the big, you know, one of the big conversations that we're having in Scotland is the importance of play and outdoor play for children. And if we're nervous about play, then we might be a little bit more worried or reserved about creating more of those opportunities for children. And I have come to just realize how important those years on the farm were for myself and my siblings, um, because we, we just had lots of room to be at ease outside and that shapes who you become. Yeah. Did, did, did you, how did you feel about school when you were growing up? Did you like school? Or? Oh, that's another great question. I loved school. Um, And in fact, at some point, we'll talk about how I came to be at the University of Dundee. I think I was always going to be an academic because I loved school. I felt really safe in school. And I clearly brought that love of reading. But I also, I think I loved the structure of school. I loved um, the interactions with my friends. And I'm, I'm, I'm commenting on that because often we may not think about the importance of that in really, in real rich detail. Um, My favorite teacher was named Mrs. Jarvis. And I can, let me tell you the key thing she did that I carry in my heart that she probably won't remember at all. My birthday is in June. And in my third grade class, we had a party for each of the children's birthdays but my birthday would have been in the summer after we ended school. And I became really aware of that really early on that we weren't gonna get to have a birthday party for me. And I can still remember, what would I have been then? So at the age of nine, I can remember my sadness that I wouldn't get included in the birthday parties because my birthday, we would be done. 
And Mrs. Jarvis was so smart that she had a birthday party for all of us who had a, a, a summer birthday so that we too got included in the birthday rhythm. And what's really interesting is I have never forgotten that. I felt really included. And the idea that someone in her now late 50s could remember that her teacher when she was nine included her in the group of birthdays is really important for us to think about. The things that matter to children are often the things we may not realize, we may not have asked about, we may, um, we may have discounted. So teachers need to know that. So the things that teachers do that they may just take for granted may be the key thing that a child is carrying in their heart and helps them to have a sense of belonging. And a sense of belonging gets built into your brain and your body as a sense of safety. And lots of our children's sense of belonging is a bit fragile. So where we can create a nation where more children have a real sense of belonging is the kind of nation that I would want Scotland to be. Well, that's, that's very, very uh, impressive. I, 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 if you were, let me see if my maths are any good at all. If you were in the third grade and you were nine, that means you started school at six. That's right. And kids here start school at five. In fact, and, some children start at four, John. Yeah. And we talked to Sue Palmer about this, and she was hugely convincing that we got this all wrong. What's your take on starting when kids start to start school? Oh, it's a really important question. Okay, so if we can pull that apart a little bit. First of all, it depends on what we mean by school. So when we say school in Scotland, we tend to think of sitting down at a desk, probably doing something academic-y, maybe worksheets, learning to write, learning how to do your letters, how to do your numbers, how to read. In other words, academic learning. And when we think of school, that's what we picture in our head. And interestingly, that's also what we get in newspapers. So if the media do stories about school, they usually find a picture of a child sitting in a desk or a child doing reading or something that looks academic-y. And that matters a lot, the images that we have that capture that. Because school doesn't have to mean that. School could mean something much more free play. It could mean outdoor play. It could mean something much more social. We could learn about all sorts of other things like how boards feel when you walk across them, like how mud puddles feel, like what climbing a tree feels like. What if that was part of what school was? Okay, just suggesting that starts to make some people really uncomfortable. And yet it is the conversation that our country is having. Okay, so Upstart with Sue Palmer, is arguing for a kindergarten stage of our education system. And Upstart feels very strongly that if you had a kindergarten stage where children weren't yet doing formal schooling until the age of seven, it would be developmentally better for them. 
and she's right. If children start formal education later, it fits with where their brain is developing and where their body is developing and how they're learning to move their body and the kinds of ways that they use their curiosity. And there's lots of data, which Sue will have talked about, that shows that if you wait to start formal schooling until six or seven, that it's actually better for children. And in fact, almost everywhere else in the world starts school at six or seven. But Britain, Scotland, England, still starts formal schooling at the age of four. The children aren't developmentally ready for that. They're not meant to sit still. They're meant to move. So we, are we have an old system that I think comes from our history that doesn't fit what we now know about children's development. And somehow we've been unable to really extricate ourselves from that. So why do, you think, why do you think that is though? Because I mean, Sue is very clear. You have been very clear. The science is very clear. The rest of the world is very clear. So how come we're stuck with this antediluvian arrangement that sees children as some sort of it would seem to me, at least, as economic actors, i.e. the sooner we get them into school, the quicker their, their mothers can get back to work. Uh, and the sooner they start school, the sooner they can leave and join the workforce. Well, do you know, we also now have a lot of, we have education funding all three and four-year-olds to attend what we call early learning and childcare. And indeed, there's state funding even for some two-year-olds. So we, we are funding as a country and as an education system, children much younger than five to be part of the education system. But if we come back to, okay, so what are they doing? What does the education system do? What kind of activities is that? Well, we have these two stages at the moment. We have this early learning, note learning, and childcare. And then we have what we call school. Okay, Upstart wants us to have a kindergarten stage. Oh. It all hangs on what you think school means. And Scotland is traditionally really proud of our academics. So Scotland had a reputation, if we go back to the 18th century, of teaching all boys and girls to read from a young age, partly because the church felt it was important for, for everybody to be able to read the Bible. And so part of our Protestant history is that, we, is that the church wanted to help young children to read as part of their really, you know, religious development. And so children started to do that at the age of five and importantly, they taught boys and girls to read. Okay, so when the Education Act of 1873 comes along to help the state become involved in children's schooling rather than just the church, the state just picks up what by that point had become normal. Children at five being taught to, to read and, and therefore it's something that we're proud of. So I think that one of our challenges is that if we 
are trying to bring in more play. And on the one hand, we're doing really well. We've got Play Scotland. We've got lots of play organizations around the country. There's a lot of emphasis on outdoor play. So there's a great organization called Learning Through Landscapes that really emphasizes outdoor play. Okay, we are doing really well at play. But I think actually as a culture, we'll, we're still nervous. I think we value learning, academic learning, and we're actually a bit nervous if we let go of learning. So let me give a few examples. Um, we have a great, we have a bus funded by the government that goes around lots of areas called the Play Talk Read Bus. So it's got the word play in it. And you're, for everybody listening, you know, your tax money goes to fund those buses. But sometimes I joke and go, yeah, but it's not called the play, play, play bus or the play, laugh bus. It's called the play, talk, read bus. And I think the word read makes us feel comfortable. We're like, oh, that's okay. There's something important going along with that play. And you hear the word often um, learning through play. Okay, we can have play as long as we're learning through play. So I think the idea of just shifting over to play for its own sake makes us culturally nervous. We're not sure that we're doing something valuable and learning sounds valuable. And it sounds a bit frivolous. And so our still Presbyterian culture is maybe to some extent a bit suspicious of just play. And so I think we get stuck a bit culturally in our attachment to learning. And so part of the, the shift to having more play and that if Upstart is to be successful in their kindergarten stage, we're gonna, we're gonna need to get more comfortable with the idea of play actually is really valuable for children. And in fact, can I say, I brought along this book tonight. This is Play mm -hmm. is the Way, which was published by Upstart in, um, in November of last year in order to try to have more conversation about play. And I have a chapter in it. And I talked about some of that history that I've just said. And in fact, Upstart has managed to get one of these, a copy of this book to every single MSP as a way of trying to have more political discussion about the importance of a kindergarten stage. And of course, not everybody agrees with that. So I hope that your listeners who are here tonight will be thinking themselves, do I think play is a good idea? Am I nervous about that at all? Do I think learning means formal academic learning? Or am I confident that the kind of childhood that Suzanne had on a farm where we spent lots of time outside is actually really healthy for children's development. And you started school at six. <laughs> and, I, and I started formal schooling at six. So you're living proof that it works. Uh, remind, remind everyone who's watching and listening tonight how they can get a copy of that book. Of course, if you go to the Upstart website, Upstart Scotland, then you'll find how to order that book. And th that book is fabulous because it has a whole range of chapters which look at the importance of play. So if you're not sure about the importance of play, that would give you information. If you want to know about how play influences the biology of children's brains and their bodies, it would tell you that. If, it would help, if you want to know about 
um, okay, so what are the political implications of more policy that really pushes play, that more money would be spent on children playing? The book will help you to do that. And I, I, so I think it's a really edgy book that really pushes our cultural uh, boundaries. When when Upstart started, they they thought that they needed to help the education system to see the value of play. But I think it's broader than that. I think it's a cultural issue that helps us to see ourselves anew. And, and then we can start to think about broader things. Why are there all those signs around the country that say no ball games for children? Why do children not have access to space in the same way that adults do? So why do our worries about windows getting broken or children making lots of noise or, you know, the other worries that adults might have, why does that take precedence over children's use of space as well? Those are edgy conversations. Lots of people will have views about that. But here's my point tonight. Children's experiences change the development of their brains and their bodies. Those, that's relationships, that's play, that's experiences of safety, experiences of fear. If, and I don't think we get that, John. I think we really have not got our heads around what the developmental science tells us, which is the children's experiences change their biology. And that includes things like how much access they have to outdoor space so they can play ball games. We need to think about this as a culture much more deeply which is why I'm excited to be here tonight to talk about this. Good, good. We'll talk about some more of that in a second. I'd just like to pick up on a couple of questions we've had. Well, a comment perhaps on that question. My 10-year-old twins don't like school. Should I be worried? It's a really good question. I like saying edgy things that sometimes make us uncomfortable. The answer is yes. Okay, so I've just said something scary. I don't want to cause worry for parents or for professionals, but I do want us to be curious. I want us to be much, much more curious. And I want us to be curious about things that make us uncomfortable. So if children don't like school, all sorts of things will be happening for them. Maybe they won't like reading. Reading changed my life. So maybe they won't like reading because it's been uncomfortable in school. Um, if that puts them off reading, that will change their lives. If that means that they don't like school because they're scared or they're bored or they don't think that the teacher likes them and therefore they trust adults less, that will change the development of their brain. That will change the development of their stress systems. Now, here's a problem. We have really high ratios of teachers to children. We ask teachers to be in charge of a large number of children. Often teachers are overwhelmed. Teachers do their best, but the system doesn't always meet teachers' needs. So right now we're in the middle of a pandemic. There are lots of teachers who are scared. There are lots of children who are scared because they've been told that they need to be scared by the, by the news. They've learned that over the last year. We have lots of parents who are scared on the other hand, there are lots of children who are delighted to be back at school. But I've watched on Twitter since children have gone back 
in Scotland. There are some people who absolutely feel really strongly that that is where children need to be and they have missed out terribly from, from seeing friends, from, uh, from the learning that we're worried about. There are other people who think this is too dangerous to send them back. Okay, can we just pause and think about what we all feel about the pandemic? There's lots of us who are scared. We can feel that in our bodies. We are longing for people that we miss. So we're grieving a bit. You can feel that in your body. Okay. Children who have those experiences, whose brains and bodies are still developing more rapidly than the, than the grown-ups, that changes their biology. And therefore, we should really be thinking about children's emotions much more deeply, much more curiously. So I don't know what that lovely mother who's just asked should do. But if her children don't like school, that's something that the adults in their lives need to pay attention to and figure out how to help. And it could be for a whole range of reasons. It could be that they don't like their current class. It could be that they're scared of other children. Maybe they're being bullied. It could be that they haven't ever really felt comfortable at school because they're overly sensory stimulated. Um, you know, so children who are autistic, who have autism, they, they help us to think about sensory stimulation. The lights are often too bright. The, the sound of the cutlery in the, in, the, you know, in the lunch hall is often too loud. So if your sensory system is overloaded, you're uncomfortable in that setting. That will happen for lots of children. They might be uncomfortable in the chairs. Okay, I don't know what we do about all of that, but we need to think more about it. So it could even be that they've been uncomfortable and scared in institutional settings since they started. So let me give one more example, which will make us uncomfortable. Lots of children are now transitioning back into nursery with the pandemic, that, but the adults are scared to have the adult, the parents come into the rooms where children are settling in nursery. And so there are many nurseries who are having the, the settling happen outside. There are still lots of nurseries who actually are inviting parents in. So there's a lot of diversity. But I am hearing an increasing number of stories of children who, who that settling process is actually not comfortable for the children. They've been home with parents for the whole last year. They're being separated from parents now. And they're not having enough time to get used to the, what is a new situation for them. If that happens too rapidly, children will be scared. And if they associate that feeling with an institutional feel, and that gets woven into their brains and bodies, it is possible that we will have children who are uncomfortable in school for the rest of their school life because an institutional setting felt uncomfortable for them. They may not be able to consciously remember that, but their brain and their body will. Is that, is that perhaps to some extent, because I think you said that children don't discriminate too uh, finely between child minders, perhaps people in the nursery and their parents. 
they see them all as being people who uh, might love them. Yes. Yes. So parents think they're handing over the children to somebody, but that's not necessarily how the child sees it. Absolutely right. Oh, John, John, you have it exactly right. The more we can get curious about how children see it, the more we help them, the more we support them. So, okay, here's another edgy comment. Young children don't know that the professionals in their lives are paid to be there. Young children assume, because they cannot assume anything else, that the adults in their lives are there because they love them. Because they don't know about money. They don't know about economic systems. And for the evolutionary history of human beings, children have grown up in their tribe or their clan to whom they belong. We've already talked a little bit about belonging tonight. A sense of belonging is crucial for a child to thrive. So children, young children assume that whoever is in their life is part of their clan, is part of their extended family. And they assume that the way that they get treated is love. Now they may not use that word consciously, but that's what their brain and their body assume. And so they kind of think that all the other kids that are in nursery with them, we might call them their peers, but their body kind of assumes that they're like their cousins. They're all part of an extended family. So one, children will have been grieving the loss of those other adults and peers in their lives over this pandemic because they haven't gotten to see them. Although there are some nurseries that have helped to stay connected to those children by sending videos and, and things like that. But the crucial thing to think about is children, young children assume that whoever's spending time with them loves them. And therefore, if they have an uncomfortable time in nursery, love starts to feel uncomfortable for them. And even my using the word love will be uncomfortable for some of the listeners tonight. Some listeners think that we should treat children prof professionally. And so that means a bit distanced. But when young children have adults who don't tune in to what they're feeling and what they're needing, that feels scary for them. And they feel re rejected. And they start to lose trust in adults around them. So if you don't if you start out not trusting professionals in your life, and by that I really mean in what feel like an institutional setting, you carry that sense of mistrust with you into the next stages, like when you go on to your next stages of school. So we need to think about this idea that children assume that the adults in their lives love them. I mean, if young children knew that you were paid to be with them, they would be appalled. You're, you're spending time with me because you're paid to be here? And see, I can see you smiling. It, we start to then get, why, why would children think that? Lots of young children think that the staff live at the nursery, or maybe they sleep upstairs in the attic. So Because they, they think of it as an extended family. Now, let me say one other thing about that. That's scary for some parents. So some parents worry does that mean that my child is going to love their key worker more than they love me? Having your child go to professionals 
which most of the children in our country do, so we live in a culture where we provide childcare in that way, is actually threatening for a lot of parents because they wonder how that intersects with their child's love for them. And I think it's one of the things that we could be bolder about in Scotland is thinking more about children's experiences and about the way in which childcare carries all sorts of emotions for everybody, for the parents, for the children, and for the staff as well. If we don't think about that, we can't meet children's emotional needs. And if we don't meet their emotional needs, then we change their brains and their bodies in ways we had not intended. That's interesting because it, it resonates so much with a couple of the other comments we've had. Stephen Kelly says, you know, I was in care owing to my childhood. Um, surely it's every child's right to have love and be wanted and support for mental health disorders. And Fiona in Glasgow is saying school isn't right for everyone. It can, it can be a form of social control. Some kids just don't fit in the box. So my key message tonight is we need to think much more deeply and much more curiously about children's emotional needs, about their stress systems, about how we help them to feel safe and to feel that they belong and, to, and so that they feel heard. There's tons of science around that. And in fact, um, after I came to the University of Dundee in 1993, which we talked about a little bit ago, it's 10 years ago this summer, I did what I describe often as a kind of a crazy thing. I resigned from a job I loved that I had always wanted to do. I had always wanted to be an academic, but I did that because I thought everybody deserved to know more about the science that I knew about and that I loved because it had huge implications for the way that um, parents raise their children and that we set up early years policies and the way the decisions we take about removing children into the care system or the kind of care that we give in NICU units or the way that violence um, emerges in a culture. And I thought people deserve to know that. So I now spend all my time working with the public, trying to help them to understand what I call the science of connection. Okay, so if, if we don't get curious about what children need and about when does school not work for them and what could we do to help school to, be, to feel safer, and some of those things actually are really easy to achieve, then we don't meet their needs. So let me give a story of Patuker East Primary School in Fife. Patuker East began to know about this information about trauma and relationships and stress. And they did a really interesting thing. They changed the language that they used in the school. They talk about distressed behavior as opposed to challenging behavior. And that simple language shift got staff to tune in to their children's needs more easily. So they were less likely to see it as misbehavior, which we then punish children for, and they were more likely to see it as behavior indicating that they needed help because it was distressed. And when the teachers from Patuker East tell that story, they talk about that insight transforming the school. Let me give another example. Um, there's three great primary schools in uh, West Lothian, um, 
Our Lady of Lourdes, St. Joseph's and St. John's, when they began to know this information, they bought, they spent their money on teddy bears, which the Daily Mail was outraged by when they heard that. But that these, very, right, <laughs> these very brave head teachers understood the science of trauma and of adverse childhood experiences which many people listening tonight might know, ACEs for short. Scotland is having a great big conversation about adverse childhood experiences, how they change the development of your brain and body. And so those three schools in West Lothian were clear and courageous enough to spend their money on teddy bears. Because what they found was that the children who were coming to school stressed knew that there was a great big teddy bear waiting for them in the, in the foyer of the school and the, the children who were stressed threw themselves into the arms of that big teddy bear. And that began to bring down their stress system. They could breathe more easily. Their heart quit beating quite so rapidly. And they could learn better. If we don't pay attention to children's stress systems, they actually can't learn as effectively as they would. So actually, we waste our money. We waste our money in our school system if we don't help children to get into a biological state where they can pay attention because they feel safe. That, that's uh, pretty categorically supported by one of the comments. Melanie McCain says, I absolutely hated school. Even teachers uh, were at the best bad and at worst they were bullies. And Fiona uh, from Glasgow said, that's exactly my point too. Uh, you know, two people who were, by the sounds of it, very unhappy at school. Maybe they could have used the teddy bear at some stage early on. I really value those comments because they help us to think about how long your, your conscious childhood experiences last. And then, on, and then there are unconscious childhood experiences which happen before we have conscious memory when we're really young or which we couldn't really make sense of. So our body can't process it consciously and it's happening you know, in, inside our stress systems. You can get triggered by things that make you uncomfortable and you don't really know why. Okay, what would have needed to happen to help Fiona and Melanie there have different experiences of school? And why was that hard for the system? I mean, I don't know how old they are. You know, I don't know if they're in their 20s or 30s or 60s. If people are in their 60s, they went to school when you got strapped. So not all that long ago, we lived in a culture and an education system that thought adults had the right to hit children and they thought they were helping children. Unless you believe that teachers came to school and thought, how will I mess up this child's day-to-day? -day? I know, I'll strap them. Actually, you know what? Maybe some teachers didn't care. Maybe actually they didn't care if they caused difficulty for children. That's important to think about. There are adults who don't care. But I think that most adults do care. And most adults just do what is normal around you. So when you come from a culture that thinks that it's normal to hit children because it, it shapes their behavior, then you don't really think about it. So in 1987, we quit strapping children in Scotland. Think about that. In 1987, that's not all that long ago. 
So how did that happen? Now, most people are really uncomfortable about the idea that adults, teachers would strap children. And can I wind this up a bit? When teachers entered teaching, and maybe there's some teachers listening tonight, maybe there are some like teachers on the probationary year, you would have been issued with or had to order a tool that helped you to do that, that was specially fashioned to cause children pain. Lots of them came from Lockelly, which is actually not far from Patuga East Primary School, given that I've mentioned them tonight. And it was stamped with a logo, an implement that was meant to cause pain, stamped proudly with a logo that was just ordinary in school. And I like talking about this because it's part of the past and we can see things in a way that we wouldn't have been able to, it's harder to see them in your time now. Okay, so whatever is normal feels normal. Okay, it was once normal for teachers to hit children. And when two irritating mothers said, you're not gonna strap my child and said to the school, I don't want you to hit my child. Then this the association of head teachers came back and said, we have a right to hit your child and we will hit your child. And so two stroppy mothers pushed that movement to the European courts. And that's why children today are not strapped in Scottish schools because two mothers made that happen. And so part of the reason I'm telling that story is that sometimes change seems like it just would have happened naturally. And one of the things I have learned is that change happens because some really dedicated people decide to make it happen. Yeah. And, and then that changes things for the future. So what was that what Margaret Mead said? That you know, a small group of people can bring about enormous change. In fact, it's the only thing that ever did. John, you're right. And I hope that that's one of the things that will come out of tonight is that people might start to think about what kind of Scotland do I want? And start to think, how could I make that change? And so I'm telling a story about how we had change in the past so that we can realize people make those changes happen. And we have really exciting things happening in Scotland. So yesterday, the UNCRC for children's rights um, the, the Scottish Parliament passed the bill that embeds children's rights in law. That didn't happen because people thought naturally children should have rights. That's because there's been a lot of people fighting for that. Um, another thing that's happened this month is that there's a mental health campaign for babies launched by the Scottish government. I had a, an editorial in yesterday's Herald talking about infant mental health. Lots of people are like, infant mental health? What on earth does that mean? But uh, So people don't even know to be curious about it. But our government has invested money in thinking about babies' mental health. That doesn't happen naturally. It's because lots of people have pushed for that. The people pushing for kindergarten stage, like we've talked about, the people who think play is important. I want a Scotland where we pay attention to children's emotional needs, understanding that that will shape the way their brains and bodies develop, and that will shape who we are as a nation. I want a Scotland that takes much more seriously children's trauma and children's needs 
and children's distress, like my birthday party story. <laughs> and we traditionally, that's not who we have been. Traditionally, we've not been great with um, expressing our feelings, with having emotion words, and with paying attention to children's needs. And we've come a long way, but I think we have quite a lot further yet to go. Yeah. And as we come out of this pandemic, I think it's a brilliant time for thinking about who do, what kind of country do I want Scotland to be? And I want Scotland to be one that pays attention to children's emotional needs and adults to have the kinds of curious conversations that take us into uncomfortable places about the ways in which we haven't always met that so that we can pay more attention to that, including children who don't really like school. How can we help with that? It's a very good point you make, and it's borne out by a comment from Robert Gallagher, who said, you know, I learned nothing at school to the last year owing to dyslexia. But in that year, I had a young English teacher who recognized my problem and spent time with me, which made me realize I was not dumb. And I went on to be a construction manager. Oh, okay. I was not dumb. That means that there's a gentleman sending us you know, messages tonight, who had a sense of himself as dumb. That shapes who you think you are. That, that means if you feel dumb, you have shame woven into your brain and your body. Shame doesn't help people to thrive. Okay, so let me say something uncomfortable. It actually turns out that we have a culture that has traditionally shamed children a lot. We thought we were controlling their behavior, but we have done that through shame. So strapping children shames them. Okay, now let me say something really uncomfortable. See the traffic light system that's really common in classrooms today? Guys, it's actually based on shame. Okay, here's why that's uncomfortable. There may be teachers listening tonight who are like, what, what do you mean it's based on shame? I don't mean it to be based on shame, I know. People do things to children all the time that they never intended to be harmful or disempowering or shaming. And yet, when we start to, if we think more closely about children's experiences, we start to realize we do things to children that we didn't mean to do. So if you say to a teacher, mm, what, could we get rid of the traffic light systems? Lots of teachers will feel anxious because how will I control a classroom of 30 children? It is a problem. But if we can start with the curious questions and if we're brave enough to go, okay, Suzanne, tell me a bit more about the shaming bit. If you don't feel judged, if you don't feel blamed, if you don't feel uh, that you're gonna be made fun of as a teacher because you're asking questions that are actually that threaten your sense of belonging to the school, we can ask the kinds of questions that children need. And I think those are leaders. They are people who can help us to think edgy, uncomfortable ideas that are out of the norm that can actually take us to a place of meeting children's needs. And once enough people get rid of strapping, then strapping, you know, more and more people signed up to that. And I would like to live in a Scotland where actually more and more people got rid of traffic light systems in schools and where we, where teachers felt safe to have that kind of conversation. The people in the audience tonight watching and listening will be thinking to themselves, I'd like to know a lot more about 
because I suspect that Suzanne has a lot more to say. Uh, and I mean, we've only got 10 more minutes. Uh, but I'd like to read your comment from Michael Curry, which seems to underscore the point you've been making. He said, schools in some countries encourage uh, kids to bring pets to the class. Uh, and it's changed the mindset of the children. Uh, they were desperate to get to school every day. Brilliant. Okay, so why can't we have pets in school? Right? And for some people you think, well, actually we've got guinea pigs and we've got, um, guinea pigs are common in schools and hamsters. Could we have dogs? Could, like, what, what? Would it take to have dogs in school? Now, some people would be going, oh, here are all the reasons we can't have that. Well, you know what? Dogs in school, petting dogs produces a hormone called oxytocin, which helps you to calm down. I call that the teddy bear hormone. It helps you to feel safe. There are lots of children who feel anxious in school. Would having a class dog help children to relax and tune in and therefore learn maths and English better? If they would, could we consider that? What would it take to ask that, what sounds like a crazy question, a class dog? Well, why does it sound crazy? It only sounds crazy because we, we don't have that. And so if there's a school out there who has a class dog or a school dog, could, if they could tell their story, could they write and tell you? Then other schools feel safer to follow in their footsteps and go, really, you have a class dog? Tell us how that works, because what well, could help more children to want to come to school? Yeah, I think that's the key. I think uh, I, there were many days when I really didn't want to go to school. I don't think I was exceptional. Uh, D.A. Rose says, build people up. Don't knock them down. Okay. So if, if you can do what's called a strengths-based approach, some, many people will be familiar with that. If we tell children what they're good at, we're often really good at telling them what they're bad at or unregulated adults and by the, dysregulated adults. And by that, I mean, when we start to get tense and we start to get irritated, you can hear it in our voice. Very often our finger might come up, calm down. That actually is not as helpful to children as adults who can breathe and make themselves calm down so that they can be more they can be ready for children's big emotions. So let me give, I heard in a training I gave recently, I heard a story of, okay, children are back at school. A little girl pushed her way into the queue because she was eager to go home. The teacher clearly saw it as misbehavior, shamed her. Rather than get curious about, I wonder what it meant to her to go home. We've just come back from a pandemic. We've just come back, listen to that. Children are just back at school after all the lockdown of the pandemic. They'll be having huge feelings. If we don't have adults who can stay curious and regulated, we make all this transition worse. Now, I'm giving examples about schooling because we started talking about that. I don't, I also want to stress there are tons of, there's great stuff going on in schools. There's lots of teachers who can stay regulated and present for children. I want to praise that. But I also want us to take serious that there are lots of teachers who aren't. And the system doesn't always help teachers to do that. And then children carry those experiences with them from school. 
we need to get brave enough to take that more seriously. That, that makes sense. Uh, Stephen Kelly has come back and says, do you share your thoughts with Who Cares Scotland, Suzanne? Absolutely. We deal with kids from care. Absolutely. So that's another thing that I would really, um, I think that we're doing really well in Scotland. So we have the care review for anybody who doesn't know that's been going on for the last, well, five years, really. So we engaged in a really serious look at why the care system doesn't work for children. And, and Stephen Kelly has said earlier tonight that he has been part of that care system. Can, can we think about that for a moment? We have children who've experienced trauma, who for whatever reason were judged not to be able to stay with their family, where perhaps there was fear, neglect, abuse. Sometimes we weren't very creative about what we could have done to help that family. So yeah. if we had provided support to the family, maybe the children wouldn't have needed to be removed. And when we did remove them to the care system, many of them went from place placement, not even home, placement to placement to placement. There are still stories that children move from one placement to another with their belongings in black bin liners. That's super simple to change, but we needed a big care review in order to start to reveal that. Our care system has not felt very loving for children. And one of the outcomes of that has been that we need to put love at the heart of that. How do we do that? It sounds obvious. And yet if it were obvious, we wouldn't have needed lots of members of the care system to say that. Yeah. We need more love in our systems. Uh, and that's clearly a, a point that resonates with people. Ruth Hanrati has said, uh, this has been super interesting. Thank you. Uh, now, lots of people watching and listening tonight, as I said earlier, might want to get in touch uh, with what you do how can they find out? Where can they go? Is there a website? Have you written a book or two? How, how can people access on, on a more comprehensive way than the 60 minutes we've been able to put together tonight? Um, and I'm delighted if I have sparked interest. Okay, so I'm very active on social media. You can find me at Suzanne Zedike. I run a Facebook page where I post something every day about the science of connection. Uh, I'm the author of a book called Sabertooth Tigers and Teddy Bears, The Science of Attachment and Connection. They can get a copy from my organization, which is called Connected Baby. So that's www.connectedbaby.net. And we'll post one out to you tomorrow if you order them tonight. There are lots of other resources there. So we have a children's book by um, Nikki Murray, who's a head teacher that talks about children's feelings. We have films. And so the core aim of all of that is to help us to think more deeply about children's emotional connection. And I am forever talking about it. So, so just remind us all again about the website. It's www.connectedbaby.net. So many people have come back saying, amazing interview. Thank you, guys. My absolute pleasure. I could talk about this. <laughs> and if it sparked curiosity, then well, I... It, I there's no question. We've had loads and loads of comments. I wish we had time to read all of them and, and take them all on board. But uh, thank you very much, everyone. Now, we're almost coming to a close. We've only got three minutes left. Uh, I need to ask you, as I ask all of our guests, how do you see the future of Scotland? I think Scotland has huge potential. There's only 5 million of us. I think we can get this right.
but I think we need to be much more bolder. I think we are a bit reticent for all the great stuff that we're doing. I think we need to be bolder. And we've got lots of great policy and great rhetoric, but sometimes when it translates into practice, we just miss it. So I would like to see us fulfill that. And as part of that boldness, does that include independence? <laughs> John, I love that. What I want is a Scotland that can pay attention to children's needs. If independence gave us a greater chance of that, then that would be my dream fulfilled. If we get distracted by questions about independence and we think that who Scotland is, is about our political identity and not our cultural identity so that we can't meet children's needs, then my vision for Scotland won't be achieved. I want a Scotland that focuses on children's emotional needs and understands that the experiences we give them change who we are, including in their adulthood. And I want that by whatever means will help that to be achieved. Excellent. I think that's a beautiful way to to uh, summarise things at the end. It's been fantastic. I just wish, uh, I mean, I did say at the beginning that the 60 minutes just flashes past. Uh, I suspect we probably only scratched the surface. Uh, it might be an idea if you've got time maybe to come back and develop some of the, these ideas further. A big thank you to Suzanne tonight uh, and a big thank you to all of you out there watching and listening uh, for joining us this evening. As ever, we have a formidable list of guests lined up and go to the What's On Guide, please, and you'll see all the details for the weeks to come. Oh, and please, very importantly, support Indie Live. These folks are all volunteers. Kevin Gibney, our producer tonight, does an outstanding job. You know, and remember, he does all of this, and it's free to you, and it's got great content. It's not just a TNT show, by the way. Go on the What's On Guide, you'll find a mass, a plethora, a cornucopia of other shows, lots of them hugely interesting. So uh, do make a point in doing that. And thanks again for joining us. And remember, it's been a great day for British democracy. Good night, everyone. Take care. Stay safe. <laughs>